I have to talk directly. My name is Alberts and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, people like you and conferences like this and my pretty Al-Anon wife, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the 7th of 1973 and for that I'm eternally grateful. That uh, is for the program. I would like to uh, thank Ellie and uh, the committee or whomever is responsible for having Sally and I. This is uh, very special for us, as Sally indicated to you. This is somewhat home ground for us, and uh, we always uh, love and delight in the privilege of being here in Minnesota. I want to thank uh, Fred and uh, Esther for uh, taking good care of us this weekend and chauffeuring us around. Uh, I want to thank uh, Fred for uh, letting me do an in-depth third step uh, on my ride from the airport to the hotel. If, uh, if, you, uh, if you are in need of an in-depth third step, I suggest you just ask Fred to go for a ride. <laughs> if you haven't nicknamed him yet, I think you should, Audubon Fred. I don't know who's responsible for the fruit basket in the room. I would have thought an alcoholic put it together because it's, it's just magnificent. I mean, normally Sally and I get a couple of bananas and a pear and a couple of oranges, but this was a real fruit basket. Beef sticks, Hershey bars, <laughs> chiclets, M&Ms. I mean, this was a real fruit basket, the kind that alcoholics like. So, and, and I'm somewhat startled. You know, there were two boxes of M&Ms in there, and Sally picked one of those up, opened it up, and had two and put it back. I, I said to her, how did she do that? That, to me, is still the most fascinating thing in the world. Because you understand, I can still get an evening's entertainment out of a dozen cookies. And I kid about this, but it's true, you know, there are people that buy cookies, take them home, put them in the jar, and wait for company. <laughs> Doesn't work like that in my house. When Sally puts a dozen cookies up on the kitchen counter, the game begins. <laughs> and I say to myself, I'll have two. And then this vulture syndrome takes over, and I begin to circle the house. Each time going through the kitchen having a cookie, and I say to myself, I wonder if I can leave too. <laughs> I've been known to wake up at three in the morning and go, oh my God, there's a cookie left in the kitchen. <laughs> so sobriety has not altered my thinking all that much. I'm still tenacious. I'm still uh, compulsive. I'm not moderate about anything. And I loved what Polly said, you know, I need you more tonight than I did the first night that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is not much of a gamble when you don't have anything to lose. But as I stand here tonight with love of friends and love of family and your love and this conference and all of the things that are in my life, you know, I have a great deal to lose and I have to be very, very careful. 
Several years ago, Sally and I were privileged to speak with an old gal called Geraldine O.D., known to some of her constituents as God. (laughs) And Geraldine has been in the program, I think, 45, 46 years, maybe a little bit more. And after the meeting, some of the youngsters were talking to Geraldine, and one of them said to her, what's the difference between Alcoholics Anonymous today and when you came in 45 years ago? And Geraldine said, there's a big difference. When I came in 45 years ago, there were five old-timers to every newcomer. And now there are ten newcomers to every old-timer. And so the rooms are full. And the faces have changed. And I have no argument with the fact that the newcomer is the lifeblood of the program. But I'm just as convinced that the old-timer is the heartbeat. One without the other does not have a great deal of value. But when you take the lifeblood, you take the heartblood, heartbeat, and you put it together, it's the two ingredients that we need for the disease of alcoholism. And when Julie, I think it was, read How It Works Tonight, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. A path is nothing more than a clearing that has been created by the old-timer that has gone before us. And I get concerned sometimes that people want to create a different path than the one that I found when I got here. So I think it's, a, it's very important, it's extremely important that we carry the proper banner of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and Alateen, if you will. I love, uh, I love speaking with Sally. I love it when we're on the same program together at the same time because uh, you heard my story. I really don't have to, to spend much time telling you how I feel and and how I was afraid. I listened to Rick, and I listened to Bob, and I listened to Kathy, and I listened to Polly, and all of your speakers, that common denominator that we all seem to have when we get here is Skid Row of the Soul. And if I think there is one common denominator that we all have in this room tonight, it's not the disease. Our common denominator is recovery, and that's what I really would like to talk about. One of the things that really enhances the beauty for Sally and I to come see you is that we see old friends like Bob and, and Linda, and, and you make us feel good, you make us feel welcome. From the moment we've arrived until this very second, you have done nothing but embrace us and make us feel good. And you know, I have to reflect back sometimes in my 23 years, oftentimes I forget that very first night. Sally talked about the, the Caddo peace, police deputies uh, really did our family a favor when they picked me up that night. But I remember when I was in jail, and the doors had just slammed behind me. And for one second I saw myself on top of this glass building in my offices in New York overlooking Central Park. And I thought to myself, I have a real problem. And then somebody told me I could make a telephone call. And that's when the turning point came about in my thought process because when they said I could make a telephone call, I was frightened because I didn't have anybody to call. People that had loved me for a long time said, don't call. And God works in strange ways because I called a customer of mine and he came down and got me out of jail. And Frank was not in the program. And I remember saying to Frank, Frank, let's go get a six-pack and straighten this out. And he said, no, no, no. He said, why don't you spend the night at my house and in the morning we'll try to figure out what to do with you. And I remember the tone of his voice when he said that, we'll try to figure out what to do with you. And I thought to myself, what do you mean try to figure out what to do with me? I don't want to be the way I am. And I remember I stayed at his house that night, and 
he had a big bottle of Pepsi Cola, I remember, in his refrigerator, and I began to pull on that refrigerator on the Pepsi Cola, and I kept looking at this big kitchen clock. And it got to be exactly six o'clock in the morning, and I remember I called this Episcopal priest. And I said, Father Paul, this is Albert, and I'm in big trouble. And he asked me if I could get down to the church, and I said, yes, I could. And as we began to talk that morning, Father Paul said to me, I want you to go to this halfway house. It's called the Bridge House on Stoner Avenue. And he said, I, there's a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor down there that I think you can relate to. And up here I'm thinking, how in the world could I relate to a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor in a halfway house? I mean, I'm kind of a high-class guy. <laughs> but one thing about alcoholics, when you get us cornered, and the evidence becomes so tangible that you just can't wiggle anymore, you start to say funny things like, okay. And I said, okay, that morning. And I remember I walked to this halfway house. It was exactly 10.30 on a Friday morning. And I entered to, to what looked like to me a very shabby, run-down house. And as I went into that room, there were three old guys there that morning. Under any other circumstances, I would not have... I'd have walked across the street. I'd have gone to the other side. These were three to me, looked like shabby old railroad guys. Bill Smith, Bill Safel, and Bill Steedley. They're all dead now. But on this particular morning, I began to talk to these three people I had never seen before. And they began to ask me questions. And I remember the first question that the man asked me was, when did you have your last drink? And I remember I began to cry and I started to pound on the table. I would just... I said, I had my last drink last night and I got these $1,200 worth of hot checks and the house is gone and the furniture is gone and the car is gone and three of the four kids are gone and Sally's trying to leave and I'm about to get fired. And, and I remember one of those old shaggy guys turned to the other one and said, boy, he sure sounds like one of us. You know, we, <laughs> we, we have these wonderful credentials when we finally get here, you know. The next old guy said to me, uh, would you do anything to get sober? And I remember saying to him, I'll do anything. And the third guy chimed in and said, would you go to seven meetings in a row? Seven meetings in a row? And I remember I swung around over my right shoulder those dippy nickel and dime slogans. I, oh, God, you know, I've seen those in Sally's dad's house. These guys are talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And this marvelous old Louisiana man said to me, Albert, we need to go for a ride. Boy, and I, I couldn't wait. I said, you bet. I got up out of that table and I got in the front seat of his car. And I remember as we drove off, I said to Bill, where are we going? He said, we're going over to Shepherd Hospital. He said, I have a friend in the alcoholic ward and I want you to meet Sister Germaine. And on the way over to the halfway house, or to the hospital, this marvelous old Louisiana man set the hook in me. I didn't realize he was doing it, but he set the hook in me and he said, You know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. And that's all he said. And I started to think about that. And we went to the hospital and we met his friend and I met Sister Germaine and on the way back to the halfway house, he set the hook in me one more time. And he said, You know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. 
As a matter of fact, I may have a drink tomorrow. And I was so fascinated by this man. I mean, I hadn't known him for 30 minutes. I would have given anything to be like him. I was noisy and he was quiet. And I was nervous and he was calm. And what I didn't know was he had the 12 psychological principles that are spiritual in nature carved in his life and he was giving them to me. He was giving them to me in a form I could see and touch and feel and hear and I was saying funny things like, okay. And I finally said to Bill, Bill, how long have you been doing that? He said, what's that, Albert? I said, that not quit drinking. He said, 27 years, but I may have a drink tomorrow. <laughs> Somehow that man in that 30-minute time frame made it all right for me to be like him. And he was an alcoholic. And I found myself saying things to him didn't make any difference. I just kept saying, yes, sir. He said, you'll be at that halfway house at 10.30 tomorrow morning. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, Ruth and I are going to take you to a meeting tonight. And I said, yes, sir. And I remember I went home and I told Sally, I said, Bill Smith and his little wife Ruth are going to come pick us up. And we're going to go to the Southfield group tonight to our first AA meeting. Hear what I'm saying to the old-timer, you know, the old-timer that we don't see much of anymore, was picking me up, was picking Sally and I up. The old-timer was taking us to the meeting. And I want to tell you, it was just like meeting Fred at the airport. When we got to the Southfield group that night, as I'm coming through the door, there's a little gal by the name of Quincy, and she said to me, Albert, it is so great to see you. We are so pleased to see you. We love you so much. And I, you know, I later found out it was set up. I realized that Bill called. But that night I had not been loved in a long time. I had not been anywhere. I had not been welcomed in a long time. And I remember we sat in a circle that night. And there weren't a great deal of people. I want to say maybe there were 25 or 30 people. And we sat in this circle. And just before the meeting started, and I still have it at home, God, Ruth handed me a little white cross that says, God is love. And she said, Albert... If you don't do anything else tonight, if you don't do anything else, just listen with an open mind. And I took that cross and I held it, and they started out around the room this way. And I can't tell you much of what was said. I heard, my name is and I'm an alcoholic, until it got about over there. And this guy said, my name is White Sox Walter, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, wow, what a name, White Sox Walter. And he went on to tell that he was new in the program, and the reason that they called him White Sox was he perspired so much that he couldn't wear colored socks. So they called him White Sox Walter, and I remember that. And then it got around about over here, and there was an old wino by the name of George. Turned out he absolutely loved and adored Sally. And he talked about locking himself in the hotel room with old uh, Sweet Tish and old Lucy. And I would never drank... Sweet Tish and old Lucy, but I, I'll guarantee you he did, and I had no problems with that. And I remembered old George. And then you could hear it go around, and you know that feeling that you get when the person next to you is talking? <laughs> and they're about to stop, and you have to say something? He said, my name is Albert, and I'm an alcoholic. God, it was like this. This anvil just went off of each shoulder, and I, I, my God, did I really say that? It was an incredible feeling. And, and every night, Bill and Ruth would come pick Sally and I up, and we would go to a meeting, seven meetings in a row. And for seven nights in a row, I said, my name is Albert, and I'm an alcoholic. 
And Bill said, you'll be at that halfway house at 10.30 every morning. And I started to say, yes, sir. And the first morning I was there, Bill said to me, this is a relatively easy program. You just don't drink and we're going to change every other area of your life. (laughs) Now, I want to tell you something. Bill was serious about that. If you smoked camels, you started to smoke luckies. If you drove a Ford, you had to get a Chevrolet. Whatever. If you'd been going to the right, you had to start going to the left. Whatever you had been doing, you couldn't do that anymore. And I found myself saying, yes, sir, to this guy. He said, Albert, you're not going to travel on the road anymore. I said, what am I going to do? He said, you're going to sell used cars. I said, I've never sold used cars. He said, you're going to start. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) I went to a fellow by the name of Mr. Donaldson, Donaldson Dodge. I said, Mr. Donaldson, I need a job selling used cars. He said, I don't have a spot for you there, but you can paint the used car offices. And for the first two weeks of my sobriety, and what a happy time it was, I painted used car offices. And Bill would come by every single day, and he would roll down his window, and you'd see, he'd say, are you all right? And I'd say, I'm fine. And then that night, he would take me to a meeting. I finally got to sell used cars. I'd been there about a month, and Mr. Donaldson said, you can sell used cars. And I sold used cars for about two weeks, but I was very upset by the fact that all the other salesmen got to drive a car home, and I didn't. You know, we're very sensitive. And I'd been there for several weeks selling used cars, and one night Mr. Donaldson called me in the office and he said, Albert, I want you to take the biggest Dodge on the lot, and you and Sally can have it for the weekend. And I want to tell you something. I had received a lot of awards. I had received a lot of recognition. I had received a lot of Stu Bennett's glass. But nothing served me as well as driving that Dodge that night to take home to Sally. Sally and I didn't have much money. I remember we went to a Walgreens drugstore and we bought a cassette, Ray Conniff's Bridge Over Troubled Waters. <laughs> and we put it in that Dodge and we drove all weekend long. We sang and we drove and we sang. And we, you know what? It, you know that, do you remember what it was when you were 60 days sober? God, and you knew it was going to be okay and the sun seemed a little brighter and the sky seemed a little bluer and the grass seemed a little... You know, you didn't have anything, but you had each other and you had the program and you had some principles that you had never seen before in your life. And you kind of knew it was going to be okay. And that was the sensation that Sally and I had. We had lost everything, and then all of a sudden we had everything. We didn't know what we had, but we had it. And it was incredible. It was just hard to believe. This wise old Louisiana man had 27 years of sobriety, and he knew that I was skeptical of that length of sobriety. Because a lot of times when you're 30, 60, 90 days in the program, you can't believe anybody could stay sober that long. And he was wise enough and smart enough to say, there's a fellow that you should have for a sponsor that you can relate to every single day. Do you ever notice who we turn our life over to in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? On a Thursday night at the Highland Group in Shreveport, Louisiana, I'm looking for a fellow by the name of Hoss Ross. Had never seen him before in my life. They told me he traveled on the road for RCA and stayed sober, and I didn't think that was possible. And I told a couple of the guys, when Hoss comes in, point him out. It wasn't very long, the goofiest looking guy you ever saw. About six foot four, weighed 135 pounds, and he dressed all in one color. And they said, that's Hoss. 
And I remember I went over. I said, you Hasaros? He said, that's right, son. I said, do you travel on the road for RCA and stay sober? He said, that's right, son. I said, Bill Smith said you'd be a good sponsor for me. Would you be my sponsor? He said, I'd be honored. He said, you have one of those big books? I said, not on my own. He said, you do now. Bought me one that night, wrote in the cover to a long life in the fellowship, Hoss Ross, and his sobriety date. He said, you belong anywhere? I said, no, I don't. He said, you do now. <laughs> I signed a card that night to the Highland Group, and I belonged. Hoss called me every single day, drove me crazy. Because Hoss had called me and said, what are you doing, son? I'd say, nothing. He said, I'll be right over. <laughs> and you know what? That's a strange thing because it kind of upset me that anybody would be that concerned. It was as if he didn't trust me. And he called one night and he said, what are you doing? I said, Hoss, I'm busy tonight. He said, good, I'll do it with you. I made a difference. Hoss was something special. Hoss was an old-timer that the old-timers talk about. That's what Hoss was. Hoss was an old-timer. Hoss said to me one day, uh, I think I can get you a job with RCA, so we're going to fly you to Dallas, and you're going to interview with uh, one of the vice presidents from RCA. I'm not 90 days in the program yet. And I remember saying to Hoss, my God, what should I tell him? And Haas said to me, if you tell him anything but the truth, I'll kill you. <laughs> it was really pretty simple. I remember flying from Shreveport to Dallas to interview with this vice president of RCA, and I'm thinking to myself, God, I would have loved that job. I mean, it would have been a great job. And I'm going to screw it up with the truth. You know, honesty is wonderful until it makes you look bad. But the truth is, honesty can't make you look bad. That was a lesson I really had to learn in the program, is honesty cannot make you look bad. I went over and I interviewed with this man from RCA, and what I didn't know is he already knew about me, and he also knew my other credentials. At the end of the interview, he said to me, we would like for you and Sally to come to Dallas to be a part of the management team with the RCA distributorship. And when I got on the plane, I went back to Shreveport. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that Hoss was right. I couldn't believe that, you know, those of us that don't make it are those that can't get honest with themselves in this simple program. I just couldn't believe that honesty was that effective out there. Bill had told me if you take those 12 psychological principles that are spiritual in nature and put them into your life, you can live out there in that society without the use of alcohol. He had told me that. I should have known it. But I kept questioning it. I got back to Shreveport and... Uh, Haas said to me, well, you're going to need a car. I said, Haas, I can't afford a car. He said, I know that. But he said, I want you to go down to Bill Hanna Ford. There's a fellow in the program. You go down there and take a look at cars. And I got down to this used car lot, and, and uh, this fellow by the name of Bill was in the program. And he said to me, he said, there's a new 73 Thunderbird over there. Go over and get in that car. I said, Bill, I can't afford that car. I said, hey. He said, I know, but get in it, drive it over to Penny's and show it to Sally. Now, I want to tell you something. When you're new in the program, you shouldn't drive a, a new car to your wife and, and show it to her. You, you shouldn't do that. I mean, I drove it over to Penny's, and I did exactly what they told me to do. And I remember Sally came out, got on the platform, looked at this new car, and she said, you take that back. And I drove the car back. I remember I went back to the used car lot, and I said, Bill, this is causing some real problems. You better take this back. He said, well, get out of that one and get in this one. I said, wait a minute. That's bigger than the one I just got out of. He said, well, that's all right. Get in it anyway. 
And then just then, Haas drove up. And Haas said to me, how do you like your new car? I said, Haas, I can't afford that car. He said, yes, you can. He said, I know your job. I know where you're going. I know what your responsibility is, and I know what you're going to make. Get in the car. And we drove to the bank. And Haas drew up the papers, and Haas co-signed the note. And on December the 13th of 1973, with 90 days in the program, Sally and little John and I drove to Dallas, Texas. I was driving a car that had been co-signed by Haas. I was going to a job with RCA that had been arranged by Haas. And the money that Sally and I had in our pockets to buy groceries that first week had been lent to me by Haas. And sometimes I get a little upset with the fact that as an old-timer, I don't treat the newcomer the way the old-timer shared it with me. I remember it was a little before Christmas, and Sally and I didn't have much money. As a matter of fact, we paid 75 for a Christmas tree, I think, three or four days before Christmas. But as we were putting up that tree, and I hope I never forget the feeling, you know, that new sobriety feeling, that new structure of life, that new sunshine that just seems to permeate your soul. I hope I never forget that newness. Sometimes I get a little callous. I've been around a long time, and, and, and I forget what it's like. Little John that Sally talked about hated my sobriety so much that uh, we couldn't keep him in school. We'd put him in school and he'd go in the front door and right out the back door. And one night a couple of truant officers just kind of carried him through the front door and uh, explained to us in a very gentle Texas way that if he didn't go to school, I would go to jail. And so we called Louisiana, we called Shreveport, and there was a couple over there at... Uh, I remember calling Fisher and I said, Fisher, we've got a real problem. John hates uh, my recovery and... Sally's recovery so much he won't go to school could we send him back to Shreveport. And for six months, Sally and I would put John on a bus every Monday morning and he would go live with his family and on the weekends he would come back. And Sally and I found this club called Alpha and we started to get very busy in the program. Sally got extremely busy in Al-Anon and the Al-Anon family group and I got busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. And one weekend we were looking at houses. I've always said that's what alcoholics do that don't have any money. We look at houses. We were just trying to kill a weekend. Sally and I were looking at this townhouse. And this lady had talked to us and said, it's only $50,000, 5% down, 8 and 3 quarter percent interest, and I don't think a loan would be any problem for you. And Sally and I just giggled at each other. I mean, we had tried to cash a check for $25 the day before at a shopping mall and didn't have enough credentials to cash that. I remember calling Bill in Shreveport and telling him about looking at this townhouse. And after a short period of time, Bill said to me, how would you like to buy that? And I said, well, of course we'd like to buy it. He said, you haven't forgotten about honesty yet, have you? And I said, no, I don't think so. He said, well, write a letter. I said, to who? He said, the loan committee that that lady was talking about. He said, you ever notice how alcoholics are scared to death of losing something they don't own anyway? The old-timer very simply said, hey, your name is, you work for this company, this is your area of responsibility, this is what you make, you're a very active member of the Alpha Group, Alcoholics Anonymous, Dallas, Texas. Sally works for this group of doctors, this is her area of responsibility, this is what she makes, she's a very active member of the Al-Anon Family Group, Alpha, Dallas, Texas. And Sally and I wrote that out, like an old-timer, like a sponsor told us to do. 
And I remember on a Monday morning, we drove up in front of this little place called Oak Cliff Savings and Loan. And Sally and I held hands like we often do. And we said out loud in the front seat of the car, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And it was a funny, it was almost a strange sensation in the front seat of our car. It was like, whatever happens is okay. Good, bad, or indifferent, whatever happens will be for our well-being. And we went in and we sat down in front of this little loan officer and, and we got down to money and we got down to credit. And I remember saying to him, we don't have any money and we don't have any credit. And that brings a strange look to a loan officer's face. <laughs> but I said, we have this letter and it will explain to you what we are, who we are. Take it, give it to the loan committee and let them decide. And it wasn't very long before they said, come get your $50,000. And Sally and I have been privileged to sponsor quite a few people at come to us and say, I can't get started, and I can't get a car, and I can't get a house, and I can't buy a boat, and I can't get any land. And Sally and I always say, well, we'll write a letter. And they say, well, that'll never work. And we say, we know, but do it anyway, and it's just a matter of time. And the honesty, the honest structure of our program seems to overwhelm people out there. I remember the loan officer at this bank saying to me, we are delighted to know where you are. Oftentimes, we can't lend money because we don't know where the people are. I've never lost anything because I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never lost anything because I've said, my name is Albert Myers and I'm an alcoholic. All of the things that I lost that were dear to me, I lost before I said, my name is Albert Myers and I'm an alcoholic or I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sally and I got busy at Alpha. I had worked for a company called Owens Corning Fiberglass. If you were here to hear Sally, I, I had been part of an executive management team in New York, and uh, I had been privileged to be in some special places and do some special things with special people. And people told me what a bright future I had, and I couldn't miss as vice president or president in time. And over several years, the alcohol did its damage, and I was asked to leave, and I was fired from a company that I loved very much. One evening, Sally and I were, were chairing a meeting, and a man came in very troubled. And he was you can see people when they come in, they're obviously troubled. And for about an hour, we listened to him. And just, you know, man, we, he started talking, and we couldn't get a net over him. And he just, you know, I've got this crazy wife and these four kids, and I just got out of this treatment center. And so after the meeting, I went over, and I said to him, I said, my name's Albert. And he said, my name's Jim. I said, what do you do, Jim. He said, I'm regional manager for Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I said, oh, God. I became his sponsor and became his friend. And a couple of years went by and Jim said to me, why don't you come back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass? And I said, oh, Jim, I don't think so. Up in Toledo in my folder, there's a little card that says, don't ever bring this guy back. And he said, no, we've changed our position on that. We have a very active employees assistance program. And of the 24,000 employees in Owens Corning Fiberglass, over 2,000 of them are in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, why don't you write a letter? I said, oh. <laughs> I knew who to write. 
And I wrote a letter and I said, Dear God, Jim and I are talking about this. If it's at all possible, I, it would be more than I would pray for. And I remember they uh, sent word back down for me to send a resume. And I, I knew they had mine, so I just gave them an AA resume. You know, September 6th, driving while intoxicated. Jail, Shreveport jail. Sold used cars two months. I just shot it back up there. And they said, would you please come up for interviews? And I was to have five interviews this particular day. And the first one was the, the formal corporate interviewer. And as we began to talk, I mean, he, just, he just smiled. And he said, you know, normally there are 30 mandatory questions that I ask. But he said, I can't ask you any of these. But he said, I've really been dying to meet you because of all the years I've been with Owens Corning Fiberglass, I've never seen a resume where a guy starts out in jail. <laughs> You can be honest to a fault, but I, you know, I was. But the fifth interview that day was with a man that had been my branch manager in Kansas City, and it went like this. He said, how's Sally and the kids? I said, terrific. I said, how's Marion and your kids? And he said, super. And he said, are you ready to come back to work? And I said, you bet. And they bridged 15 years and brought me back with Owens Corning Fiberglass. And I'd been with them about a year, and I was playing racquetball one night, and... Uh, I developed this pain in my back. It was in my right shoulder, and I noticed that the, the pain was a little excruciating from time to time, but I didn't think much about it. I just thought I injured it in the court. And So I went to work the next morning, and I had a business luncheon that day, and that evening Sally and I went out for dinner. And I said, why don't you run me by Presbyterian? The, the pain in my back is just a little more than I'm comfortable with. And as they started the exam, all of a sudden the guy said, boy, I hate to tell you this, but you've had a heart attack and you've shut down the whole right coronary area. And if you know anything about emergencies or intensive heart care units, they just took me right up to the intensive heart care unit and they have little plaques on the wall that say family only, two people limit only, two minute visit only, and I'm wired for sound and I'm going in and out of the oxygen and Sally and one of the sons have just been there and I came to the second time, this black guy that I sponsored was standing at the end of my bed, and I said to Bob, I said, Bob, how the hell did you get in here? He said, I told him I was family. <laughs> I said, what else did you tell him? He said, I told him you were my father. <laughs> we, uh, we really are family, and... So I went to the Kenneth Cooper cardiovascular class and I was there for about 90 days and I was just going through a routine physical one more time and, and when the guy came out he had this long face and he said, I hate to tell you this, but you've had a second heart attack and scarred the back of the heart and uh, said, you have a problem, you can't monitor your illness. And I said, yeah, that happened to me once before. And <laughs> so they said, we need to do an angiogram and uh, they did. and. Uh, a little over 14 years ago, I had a triple bypass. So, you know, it's, it's incredible. I'm standing up here with a rebuilt engine and uh, going to go another 100,000 miles. And, but the incredible thing about it is, you know, when that kind of thing happened, I've listened to all of the speakers. I've listened to Kathy and to Polly. And, you know, we, we've all had a tragedy in one form or another. And the incredible thing about it is, the magic is in this room. I don't care what the adversity seems to be at the time. No matter how deep it seems to be or how tragic it seems to be, the one thing that Sally and I have come to find out is that good comes from everything. 
It may, lay, it may seem like adversity at the time, and it probably is, but there is good in there. Somehow the principles of the program, the structure of this program, uh, is an incredible thing. We all have living programs. What we need are living answers. <clears throat> Sally mentioned the children would get to be 18 and they would leave. Once they got out of that alcoholic home, they stayed out of that alcoholic home. I thought they were just going off to college, but they weren't. I remember one time my daughter wrote me this letter that said, You'll always be my father, but my love for you will never be the same. And I remember reading that over and over again, thinking, What have I done to destroy the relationship with my only girl? And I'm sure it was a combination of a lot of things. And I, to this day, I'm not really sure what it is. See, I'm such a tangible alcoholic. If I don't see a black and blue mark, if I haven't drawn blood, I figure I haven't hurt you. It never occurred to me that I could steal your peace of mind. And when we get here with a soul sickness, the one thing that I can't monitor is the depth of your pain because I've stolen your peace of mind. I've had an opportunity to make amends to each of my children. And to a person they have said to me, it wasn't the shoving and the shouting and the noise and the pushing and the kicking and the, you know, it's that you stole my peace of mind. And I have no way to measure that. So I walk around, I'm a father that's plagued with a certain amount of guilt that I just can't seem to get rid of. The oldest son, as Sally mentioned to you, uh, hit the campus of the University of Iowa in the late 60s. It was a very rebellious time and he got into drugs and sold and trafficked and jailed and Married and divorced with a youngster before he was 20 and another youngster in a relationship with no marriage. And I remember Sally and I would sit down in the quietness of an evening and try and figure out what was happening to our children. And Tom, the middle son, just left. It seemed to me I came to breakfast one morning and Tom was gone. There wasn't any, there wasn't any dialogue, there wasn't any yelling, there wasn't any pushing, he just left. And poor little John, you know, he was never old enough by age to to get out of the pain of the house. It was an incredible thing. I'd been in the program for about 10 years. And Roxy called one time and she said, Dad, I'm having problems in my relationship. Could I bring the grandson and come to Texas? And I remember saying, sure. When are you coming? And she told me, and I said, you may want to pick another weekend because Mother isn't going to be here. And she said, no, I think I'd like to come down and be with you. And I remember she came down and we went shopping. We were walking around North Park in Dallas and I said to Roxy, I said, Roxy, I see in this morning's paper that George Shearing and Mel Torme are playing down at the Fairmont Hotel. How'd you like to have a nice night out on the town with your dad? And she said, I would love that. And then we had one problem, we couldn't find a babysitter. And I remember I called the son in Houston. The middle son had moved to Houston. And I called Houston. I said, Tom, Roxy and I have a problem. We want to go out tonight, but we can't find a babysitter. He said, no problem, Dad. I'm on the first Southwest coming up. And the middle son came up and babysat that night so Roxy and I could go out on the town. And I don't mind telling you, we got fancy. We got all fussied up, and we went down to this great hotel in Dallas. And Dad went to some links to make sure we had the right table. And the maitre d' took us to our table and we began to dance and the music began to play and I asked Roxy if she'd like to dance. And 
I remember I'm holding Roxy and we're dancing out there and I hear you're the greatest dad in all the world and I love you so much and you are so special and you mean so much to me. And the tongue is a poor instrument in the affairs of the heart. There's no way that I could tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous meant to me that night while I'm holding my girl, we're dancing, and she's telling me I'm the greatest dad in all the world. I would not have known how to pray for that. You have to understand, and I hope you appreciate the fact that what I'm about to tell you is you are responsible for the success of a lot of my amends to my children. My children did not trust me. What they trusted was you. What they trusted was the program. What they trusted was the principles of the program. And in time they trusted me because you trusted me. Because Bob trusted me, or Polly trusted me, or Linda trusted me, or Doug trusted me. Because you trusted me, all of a sudden my children trusted me. And when we talk about this as a program of attraction and not promotion, we become attractive because we're protective and loving of each other. It's wonderful to have your grandchildren call and say, Hey, Grandpa, I love to come to your house better than all the houses I go to anywhere. Why is that, Corey? Because it's quiet. Hey, the grandchildren love to come to our house because they know what they're going to get inside the four walls. It's quiet. It's their sanctuary area. The kids love to have us come visit them because they know that we're going to bring a quality of living that they don't have yet. Boy, don't you know it's an incredible thing when you get a card from your kids or, or from one of your children that says, P.S., I just want to tell you I'm proud of what you've done with your life. You've certainly given me something to live up to. You and I crippled our children in the home with the disease of alcoholism. And they've struggled and limped in society. And then all of a sudden these same children that you crippled are writing you letters that say, God, I love what you've done with your life. You've certainly given me something to live up to. That's what I wanted to do from the time they were born, is to give them an example of how to live. And guess what? Because I came to you, because I practice the 12 psychological principles that are spiritual in nature, I go to those dumb meetings. You know, the magic's in the meetings. You can't explain this to anybody else. Try and explain this sometime, because we talk funny in here. I mean, we can sit down and talk with each other and say, hey, I was thinking of killing myself yesterday. Oh, really? No big deal. I was thinking about that last week. I dare any of you to go to work Monday morning, nudge your coworker and say, hey, I was thinking of killing myself over the weekend. <laughs> only in here. This is the only place where I can come ventilate my disease, ventilate my illness. And you have only said to me, I love you, I trust you. I understand I have a way out. The oldest son continued to get... You know, I remember the last time Chuck got in jail. And I'm saying, my God, he's 35 years old. When is he going to stay out of jail? I didn't stay out till I was 46, but you know, I forget. They called and he was in jail down in Austin on two counts of uh, criminal mischief. And the bail had been set and the attorney's fees were $2,000. And I'm 12 years in the program and there's still a guilt chip down there and I'm writing this check for $2,000. And up here, my alcoholic mind is saying, 
but Chuck will know this $2,000 is different. This is different than the money I put on the car. This is different than the thing I got with your furniture. This is, I should have written on the check, this money is different. Any Al-Anon in this room can tell you that isn't going to work. But when you're a father that's plagued with a tremendous amount of guilt and you will do anything to make it up. My amends went like this to my kids. God, I am really sorry for what I did and I feel badly for the promises that I made and couldn't keep and God willing, it'll never happen again and would you like a colored television set? I mean, you know, I just... just I, I just want you to know that I'm serious about this amend. And I sent that $2,000 check down there and it wasn't very long, 45 days, maybe two months. They called and he was back in jail again. The bail had been set and the attorney's fees had gone up. And each time I tell this, it confuses me just a little bit more because I don't know why I did it. We're about halfway through the conversation and I said to Chuck, Chuck, I love you, but I'm done and I'm not going to play anymore. I don't know how you got in and I don't know how you're going to get out. And I put the phone down. And I've heard the Al-Anons talk about frozen emotions. And I remember standing there, not even thinking to call my sponsor. I just, it just didn't. I finally called an Al-Anon. And I said, I've just said no to my son for the first time in 12 years and my heart is broken. And she said, of course it is, you're a father, but you've got to work the steps. And she said that in a very soft, loving tone. And I remember my response being one of anger, damn it, I know the steps. And she said very softly, yeah, but you're not working. And I said, for heaven's sakes, help me. And she said, well, say out loud, you're powerless over your son. He makes your life unmanageable. And I'm standing there with a the phone going, I'm powerless over Chuck. He makes my life unmanageable. I'm powerless over my son. And he makes my life unmanageable. And it was like an extra light just popped through the ceiling because that's the way it was. The clarity of the situation when you're saying it out loud with the help of somebody guiding you. I'm powerless over Chuck. He makes my life unmanageable. And that's what it had become. And a power greater than yourself will restore him to sanity. If a power greater than myself restores me to sanity and a power greater than himself restores him to sanity, we don't have that problem. And if I turn his will and his life over to the care of God and I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I don't have that problem. And then she said to me, write down a couple of things that make you feel guilty about your son. I mean, God had gifted him as an artist and a poet and a journalist. My foot was in the middle of his back saying, it's a competitive world out there and you're really going to love me for having my foot in the middle of your back. Don't you remember you used to get him by the shoulders and kind of hold him up against the wall and say, damn you, get your hair cut, get to school on time, pick up your clothes, you do what I'm telling you to do, you can be just like me. Don't you remember the eyes that used to look out when you got him up there and you just... You're grinding on them and those eyes would look out and you could just, they weren't saying anything, but the eyes were saying, I'll do anything but be like you. I'll do anything but be like you. I remember one time the son looked me straight in the eye and he said, Dad, you're insane. He said, how dare you talk to me like that? By God, I put the clothes on your back and the food on the table and the roof over your head. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have what you have. And I didn't know how true that was. I crippled my own son. I was his example. Why shouldn't I make living amends to him for a long time? I crippled him for a long time. Why shouldn't I make amends for a long time? 
I left him in jail that day because an Al-Anon took the pieces of my heart and put them back together for me and set me on a path I should have been on all the time. And it took me a year to get to Austin to get down and play some golf and another year for Chuck to come up and play some golf with me. And then six or seven years ago, what happened happened. On Father's Day, a big card came and there was a monkey dressed up like Humphrey Bogart on it. He opened up the, the card. The caption was, Here's looking at you, Dad. And down below it at P.S., I just want to tell you how proud I am of what you've done with your life. You've certainly given me something to live up to. He's taken a run at uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. For about six months, he was... Uh, and the smoking depressed him a little bit. You know what, Sally and I haven't lost any sleep because in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where it says, working with others, I can do that. I can work with others. I can look at your children and see untreated alcoholism. I can go over and embrace you and tell you exactly what to do and where to go and how to help you. When I swing over here and see my own, I see social misbehavior. My vision goes bad. But I know one thing for Sally and I. When the time is right, you will save our kids and we'll save yours. That's the way it's worked for us. I have not ever been able to save one of my own. I can hold up the example of how the program is working and I can be very attractive to my children. But when it comes down to bullet biting time, you're going to have to get them. I'll get yours and you get mine. Our middle son, Tom, like outside of where Tom came from, he just, he just goes right down the middle of the road. Everything he touches is wonderful. You know, he, you just see him going right up the corporate ladder. He was a credit manager for TI, and Dell wanted him, and for about two years they chased him in signing bonuses, and they go to Europe, and they go to Germany, and they travel, they go to Switzerland and France, and she got back, and she went whitewater rafting at Colorado, and Tom went up to Kenora fishing, and you know, and they have stock, and they have plants. I mean, it's, and you wonder, Sally, and I wonder, where in the world did he come from? I mean, you know, we, he hasn't been in jail. He just... Got one house, you got two cars, you got two kids, one boy, one girl. I mean, if you sat down and wrote it out, I mean, and you go, Boy, it's nice to have one of those. I mean, you wonder what, what happens, but But the interesting thing about it, when Tom and Karen were married up in Springfield, Illinois, Sally and I were up for the wedding and at the reception, uh, Tom was dancing with his mother. And his statement to her was I hope that Karen and I can have a marriage just like yours and Dad's. And on our anniversary last June, we had another one of those cards from the kids that said, gosh, you know, what an example you've set for us. Your marriage is something special and we'd like to have one just like it. Little John used to keep a loaded shotgun for Sally and I. He disliked our recovery so much. And when we finally got John back to Dallas and got him in Berkner High School, I don't mind telling you, I spent more time his senior year in Berkner High School than he did. <laughs> and there was a time his senior year in Berkner High School when there were four or five teachers that wanted John expelled. And there was a coach that had thrown him off the golf team. And there was another phys ed coach that uh, had barred him from some classes. And they called me one day, the assistant principal called, and they said, uh, we need to have a meeting with you and your son. And I remember John and I went up to Berkner High School that day, and we sat in this small room. 
And there were four or five teachers there, and there was the guidance counselor and the principal and the assistant principal and the phys ed coach, and, and each one of them began to take a pound of John's place as they went around the room telling me how bad John was, and he needed to be expelled, and he was taking Valium and sleeping in classes. And it got around to John, and John was sitting to my right, and they said, John, is there anything you want to say? And John said, no. And then they said to me, is there anything you'd like to say? And I said, yes. I said, my name is Albert Myers, and I'm an alcoholic. And John is a product of an alcoholic home. And the guidance counselor to my left almost jumped out of his chair. He said, oh, that's why he is the way he is. He said, you know, John has problems reading, and when he gets behind in class, his tendency is to choose the teacher and cause a commotion so he can get thrown out. He said, you know, I think we can get him some reading classes at Richland Junior College. I want to tell you from the time I said my name was Albert Myers, I'm an alcoholic, that went from negative for John to positive. Each one of those people picked it up going around the room what they could do for John. Don't you know that to this day John still considers that the greatest amend I've ever made to him? I've lost track of time, but I want to say six months or nine months later, John was offered an athletic manager scholarship to SMU. Academically, he wasn't equipped to take advantage of that offer. But he's a hard-working guy, and he's got the principles of the program. And the next thing I knew, he was working for Jones of New York and Christian Dior. Today, he's 38 years old. He is president of his company. He lives in New York. He travels to China. He goes into Canton, China, and negotiates manufacturing contracts. Things aren't too good in China right now. He's on his way to Bangkok. He's on on his way to India. He travels the world. Not too long ago, he called and said, hey, just want you to know I'm in London, you know. And you go, wow, this 15-year-old kid that used to keep a shotgun in the bedroom for Sally and I is now president of his company, travels worldwide, negotiates manufacturing contracts for ladies' sportswear worldwide, negotiates sales and contracts with all the major department stores in the United States, He's never been to a meeting. He's never been in an Al-Anon meeting. He's never been in an AA meeting. But I will guarantee you that you are attractive to him. The principles of the program that you and I share in his life, he loves you and he loves the program. I have a little 91-year-old mom. Absolutely adored her when she was in Santa Cruz, California, and I was in Texas. I've had a love-hate relationship with that lady for a long time. And a little over five years ago, I heard my mother say, it's tough to get on the bus, it's hard to get to the doctor, I can't carry the groceries anymore. And I was talking to her one Sunday and I said, Mom, why don't you just pack it all in out there in California and come on back to Texas where Sally and I can love you and get surrounded by family. And when I put the phone down, I said, oh, you didn't. You didn't. One more time, the principals of the program reached down and God gave me an opportunity to be the son that I should have been all along. So a little over five years ago, Sally and I brought my little old, at that time, 85-year-old mom back. The always interesting thing, uh, my mother has never been to an AA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting. And, and a couple of years before that, I was uh, speaking at Fresno on a Saturday night. And I said to mother, I said, how'd you like to go to one of those AA conferences? And 
She wanted to get like that. So Sally and I flew to San Francisco and drove down to Santa Cruz. That time picked up my little 83, 84-year-old mom. And on a Saturday night in Fresno, I introduced her to 3,000 alcoholics. And you stood, and you clapped, and you laughed, and you giggled, and you loved her, and you hugged her, and you told her about her boy. Hell, she thinks I'm president of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> It's a, it's a sight. My mother loves pizza. So every Wednesday I would take mom for pizza and we'd go get pizza. And then she loves to go to the grocery store because that cart is like a walker and she can put her cane in there. And So I took her to Tom Thumb, which is pretty prevalent in Texas. You know, I just kind of pointed her in the bread section. I said, well, you have a good time now and I'll just go down and have a Coke and wait for you. So I'm down there for about 30 minutes and, you know, mom's not showing. So I walk back up and she's just on the second aisle. And she's having a while, you know, she's visiting with everybody and she can't see things on the top shelf and she can't see things on the bottom shelf and she was getting everybody to help her. So I just thought I would go back down to Fresh Fruits and Vegetables and wait two hours from the bread section to Fresh Fruits and Vegetables. So for four years, every Wednesday, I would take my mom and I'd put her, you know, we'd have some pizza and I'd take her down, put her in the bread section and it got to be, I'd just leave for two hours and come back and she would pop up Fresh Fruits and Vegetables. But the wonderful part about that, when I get her back to the apartment and I would take in the groceries and I would set them up on the kitchen shelf, this little 91-year-old mom now who's shrunk down in size will come up and say, you're the greatest son in all the world. I just couldn't make it without you. I'm an only child. Now, I want to tell you something. Up until probably a year ago, I could hug anybody's mom but my own. Your mother could walk in here. I could embrace her with all the love and compassion. I couldn't hug my own mom. I could, but it was painful. I can't tell you what kind of scar tissue was down there that I could get cleaned out. But in the last six or eight months, Sally and I have put my mother in a new place, kind of an assisted living place. And she goes to crafts on Thursdays and canastas on Fridays and bingo on Wednesdays and the cold beer on Sunday. And, you know, she just, she just says, I love you so much. And I guess a few months back, I let her in the front door. And when I let her in the front door, she gave me a hug and I caught myself embracing my mother for the first time with no restrictions. I'll be 70 on my next birthday. And for the first time in my life, I've been able to hug my mom. It's been a long time coming. It's nice to have a love affair going with your lady after 48 years. And I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to find out that having a good relationship is not finding the right person, it's being the right person. And my having a love affair with Sally doesn't have anything to do with Sally. It has everything to do with my behavior. When my love, when my behavior is good, my love affair is good. When my behavior is funny, my love affair is funny. This old Louisiana man, the first week that I was in the program, said, I want you to date Sally every Friday. I said, Bill, we've been married for 25 years. Why would I do that? He said, because the alcohol has destroyed your senses and you're going to have to learn how to touch and see and feel and here all over again. And I want to tell you something. The old Louisiana man was right. If you and I get here with Skid Row of the Soul, 
If we have a soul sickness and we're given 12 psychological principles that are spiritual in nature and we are given a spiritual program to cleanse our soul, then in time, doesn't it make sense that you should begin to see spiritually and hear spiritually and feel spiritually and touch spiritually? I've known Sally since she was 19 years old. I know every dot and dash on that magnificent body. But I want to tell you something. There are times today when I look at her that she's more beautiful than she's ever been. That's what I see. Every once in a while I'll swing around and I'll catch her out of the corner of my eye and I see this beauty that just startles me. I don't know how many times we've loved and hugged in 48 or 50 years, but it's a bunch. But there are times in the morning when maybe I'll just embrace Sally that the touch is new. Or maybe I'll brush against her cheek or just give her a, a peck on the lips. And that sensation is new. So the old Louisiana man was right. I don't hear the way I heard when I first got here. I don't see the way that I saw things when I first got here. I don't feel about things the way that I felt when I first got here. This is a spiritual program that in time I should have a spiritual structure and personality about me. It's been slow coming, but I want to tell you it's great to have a love affair going with you, lady after this long. I just had one sponsor for 20 years in Dallas. A fellow by the name of Shep. Shep was a great sponsor and <laughs> kind of a story. He was a little Irish storyteller. He would tell me great stories that would be apropos to the program. And I'm going to tell you the last story that Shep told me before he shot himself. Shep had 32 years in the program and he became very ill, very sick, physically and mentally. And one evening his wife Nancy, who was Sally's sponsor, went to a meeting and when she got home Shep had shot himself. Shep was a member of the Flying Tigers. He was a fighter pilot, World War II. He was one of Chanel's Flying Tigers. And I'm going to tell you the last story that he told me. He said, Albert, I was going down this road and off in the distance I saw this old fighter plane, the kind that I used to fly during the war. And he said, my curiosity got the best of me and I went over to take a look at this old fighter plane. And he said, the guy that owned the plane was there and the two of us began to talk, telling war stories, lying to each other. And he said, after a while, this old guy said, he said, Shep, how'd you like to take that fighter plane up and fly it? And Shep said, oh, wouldn't dare, it's been way too long. The old guy said, that's all right, I'll get in with you, we'll fly together. So he said, Albert, the two of us got in this plane and we started flying around and the old guy said to Shep, he said, Shep, how'd you like to take the stick? Shep said, I wouldn't dare, it's been way too long. The guy said, that's all right, I'm here with you. He said, Albert, I got a hold of that stick. He said, I was so nervous. He said, I pulled that stick back and that plane shot up in the air. He said, almost, he almost killed it out. He said, I got so excited. He said, I took that stick and I shoved it forward. And he said, boy, that nose went over. He said, I almost put it in the ground. He said, you know, Albert, that guy took that stick away from me. He said, we got down on the ground. The old guy got out of the plane. He came around. And he said, hey, Shep. He said, you've forgotten something. Flying a plane and keeping the wings level is not one big pull or one big push. It's just one minor adjustment after another. And he said, you know, Albert, your program is a lot like that. It ain't one big pull. It ain't one big push. It's just one minor adjustment after another. Thanks for having us. We love you tonight.